Hello, this is Craig Camp, and welcome to Truant Talk, where we dig deeply into Demeter Biodynamic and Regenerative Organic Certified Wine Growing and Farming at Truant Vineyard in Oregon's Applegate Valley. This is meant to be a podcast for those that aspire to, as the Regenerative Organic Alliance says, farm like the world depends on it. These interviews will be focused on our work here at Truant Vineyard, but will also include the work of other farmers committed to regenerative agriculture. And now for today's interview. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Truant Talk, where we dig deeply into biodynamic and regenerative organic agriculture. Joining us today, as he so often does, is Garrett Long, our Truant Director of Agriculture. Hello, Garrett. Hello. Good morning. And our special guest today is Marjorie House. Uh, Marjorie is an Oregon farmer. She's the preparation keeper of the Oregon Biodynamic Group board chair of the Biodynamic Demeter Alliance. She studied ethnobotany from the University of Idaho, has a certificate in herbology and nutrition from the Center for Herbal Studies and a permaculture certificate from Cascadia Permaculture Institute. Welcome, Marjorie. Could you tell us a little bit more about your background and what led you down the path to biodynamic agriculture? Um, yeah, so I, in the late 90s, I came to Eugene to go to school at the Eugene Waldorf School to learn to be a teacher and quickly decided that wasn't for me. So I pursued herbology and nutrition. And I had at that point, I had read a lot of Rudolf Steiner. And then I stumbled upon the agriculture course. And I read it and I thought, oh, this is a some lost farming art that nobody knows about. <laughs> so um, not knowing because Steiner doesn't say biodynamics in the agriculture course. He doesn't call it biodynamics. So I didn't know it was biodynamics. So I read it and then I was caretaking a farm uh, that, what, that was using biodynamic practices. So the woman who owned the farm, Mrs. Whipple, was in her late 80s and her husband had passed away the year before. So I was there, I was using moon calendars, and I was reading the agriculture course, and I attempted to make the preparations for the first time, and very um, literal, so I was taking whatever I could find, I used a horse skull to make the, the oak bark preparation, and I put it under the spout of a, of a house, you know, with a downspout. Where water was running and then I went and got cow stomach from a butcher shop and intestines from a, a butcher shop and um hold on I have dog in here out go out um and I made all of the preparations with what I could find and then I put those whole pieces those whole like that whole cow stomach with dandelion and the whole bit of intestines um, in the compost pile, in that compost pile, I put nettles in the compost pile. I was doing it as best as I could in my attempt. And now when I think back about making preparations by myself and thinking I was onto some lost art, um, it's completely laughable now that I know how to make preparations and have learned from groups. So anyway, I attempted to make the preparations on my own and it was an amazing compost pile <laughs> I have to say meanwhile Mrs. Whipple was bringing me the preparations that she had ordered from a group and she was like here you need to put these in the compost pile so I was using those preparations but I wasn't clicking that biodynamics and what I was re reading in the agriculture course was the same thing uh, just wasn't clicking for me and so then I, that next spring, I went to a beekeeping course uh, with Gunter Hawk at the Pfeiffer Center in New York. And that it was there that I realized what I was re reading in the agriculture course was biodynamics. So then I said to someone there, I said, oh, I, I really wish you guys could have a, a an intensive here, like a winter intensive so that people like myself coming from far away can come and learn biodynamics for a couple weeks. And then a few years later, they did. They had their first agriculture course at the Pfeiffer Center that was an intensive. And it was um, Stefan Snyder, um, Malcolm Gardner, Mac Mead, and I can't remember that 
there was some other guest speakers. So that was a an in, um, a week long intensive. That's where I re met Rudy Marchese. He also was there and having his first introdu introduction to biodynamics uh, from Montenoir. And um, then a few years later, Hawthorne Valley also had an agriculture intensive. And this was people like Walter Goldstein and Sherry Wildflower and Malcolm Gardner. And again, uh, uh, St Stefan Snyder and a whole bunch of other biodynamic practitioners. Um, and that was a week long at the Nature Institute doing observation and then a week long at Hawthorne Valley learning about biodynamics. And then Malcolm Gardner said to me, you know that there's a group in Oregon that's been going since the 70s making biodynamic preparations. And lo and behold, I had been to that farm, Wintergreen Farm, and I still hadn't made the connection because I knew that Wintergreen did some kind of herbal preparations and whatnot and um, had had friends that work there. But the the word biodynamics still hadn't crossed at that moment. And so Malcolm said, you know, there's this great group and, and you should go and join them. And so I came back and that was in 2006. I joined the o Oregon Biodynamic Group. And then the rest is history. I just really dove into it and have learned from the people there that were so steeped in it. Heike Marie Eubanks is one of my mentors and Wally Via, and they really um, helped me to learn the, the intricacies and the little bits of biodynamic preparation making. Um, and so then, yeah, I've been a part of that group since then. And then just about, let's see, last year, I took over the preparation keeping. Uh, Heike Marie had done it for decades. Uh, and then we had a, a, a guy, uh, Adam McKinley, who took it over and had kept the preparations at Gearcrest. And we had one other person in there in the meantime uh before they came here to our farm and so now i keep the preparations here and send them out all over the united states um i've sent a, sent one to france preparations to france um and then i took um is it okay if i keep going <laughs> some aha moments so uh, in the meantime, I started working for Ed King of King Estate. Uh, he brought me on to help the winery go organic and to test out compost teas. And the whole time I was, we were finding that the compost, compost teas were kind of strong and adding, you know, causing a lot of growth. And so, or vigor in the vines, I guess is what you would call it in the wine world. And so... I kept telling him, you know, maybe we should just be doing the biodynamic teas because maybe that'll be more subtle. And um, in 2002, King Estate became uh, certified organic with Tilth. And then I just stayed on as his personal gardener at his farm. So I was doing the biodynamics, but he, um, one of the only emails he ever wrote me was to stop talking about biodynamics because it was woo woo. <laughs> and so um, I was still doing it there. And uh, he didn't care if I was doing it, just didn't want to talk about it. And, but then in the meantime, he uh, sent me and one of his other gardeners to a course with Elaine Ingham. And so I went to one of those in-person courses and then did some online courses with her. And that's when I started to have these um, aha moments of what biodynamics was doing, because I knew from herbology and learning nutrition and anatomy and whatnot and then taking the Elaine Ingham course where she is saying that you have to have these fungal bacterial combinations and the more stuff you add to the compost pile the more you might capture these symbiotic relationships of fungus and bacteria and so then that's when I went oh well that must be what's going on with the preparations because when you rot an animal part you get bacteria and when you rot a plant part you get fungus and so here are these perfect fungal bacterial combinations that's Rudolf Steiner just interpreted um you know intuited and so that for me I kind of started going down that rabbit hole of that's what 
must be happening here. And that's where also with people like Ed who are, who were at the time, he may have changed uh, more into the science side. I said to myself, you know, in order for biodynamics to grow, we have got to make connections with the modern world. And farming, it's gone from folk farming where people used to use these kinds of things and ha have their own fertility on the farm and use moon calendars and the moon rhythms. And then we went to this industrial revolution, industrial age of farming with the use of, of fertilizers and synthetics. And, and then now here we are coming back to the folk farming and we have all this science to back it up. And so that's where I said, we have to make bridges. Biodynamics has to make bridges in order to grow. It has to be able to start to explain things. Even if we can't, we can't completely explain them now, those are my intuitions, just as Steiner's intuitions were to just do this in the first place with these combinations. Now, my intuition says, maybe this is what's going on and now we have this ability to ask the right questions i think asking the right questions nowadays with what's going on with biodynamics um is going to take us really far as far as being able to explain some of these things now i've been told that you can't explain what what biodynamics does like there are people that are so steeped in the dogmatic part of biodynamics that they say you can't explain what's going on but in my mind if Steiner were alive today he would be backing this up he was a spiritual scientist he was in he was a scientist in itself in it in his own right and I think that he would be supporting this kind of of explanation yeah so <laughs> So, so Marjorie, you, you recently led a biodynamic preparation making field day here at Trin Vineyard. Why do you think these group events are important to the practice of biodynamics? Definitely the group events uh, take a lot of the mystery out of biodynamics and it helps people to get their hands dirty and have the hands-on experience and really have this tangible understanding of what's going on, plus the social aspect and the support and the you know, talking with other people, I think that that's super important, but really just the hands-on, seeing what the preparations are, seeing what's going on, it just, it takes a mystery out of it, I think, for people. I think that's really important for people to see how easy it is and, and what it's all about. All right, so, so Garrett, what led you to want to host uh, uh, a preparation-making workshop here at Trin? Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything Marjorie was just saying about the importance of of gathering um, to improve the practice and also just share the knowledge. Um, for myself, you know, biodynamics, I think, presents an opportunity for individual growth and spiritual growth and connection. Um, I think it provides a lens through which the practice can become meditative and you can gain new insights. And um, there's a lot of kind of associated exercises and practices um, that can be done individually and I think should be practiced by every biodynamic farmer as, as you deepen your own practice. Um, but I think in my experience, and I am guilty of being an extreme extra extrovert and loving social gatherings, but also I think that's where a lot of real knowledge sharing comes in. I mean, as Marjorie was talking about her own journey and, and listing off some of the, the biodynamic greats, as far as I'm concerned, some of the, the most well-known and, and, and the sort of eldest of the, um, uh, you know, living biodynamic practitioners today, um, I think having mentors like that, gathering folks like that are ways to both hook folks who are maybe interested or kind of, you know, like Marjorie, like read the book, but didn't make the connection, or maybe you'd heard something or heard a podcast or something like that, whatever. Um, and are just interested in learning more. I think gatherings are really important. So for us in Southern Oregon, there is a history of having an active group here in Southern Oregon that, that was separate from the Oregon group that Marjorie um, is representing. 
and it's kind of it's kind of fallen off in in this modern age with with the passing of of some really important practitioners like Devin Strong, um, who really led the way. And so for me to be a biodynamic farmer at Troon for the last couple of years, revitalizing this energy and this 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 impulse in Southern Oregon was really important to me. And to have Marjorie come down and help shepherd that and help inform me and us of some of that history and that legacy here, I think was really important. So I think, you know, it's it speaks to to the general wisdom that can be shared when you have um, um, mentors and elders present and and also um, to look back at that legacy and also look forward. And I think gathering the folks here who are interested in Southern Oregon and really catalyzing this and gathering more frequently seasonally, um, that was the real the real catalyst for this gathering that we just had. So uh, now five years into this process, uh, we are making all the biodynamic preparations here on site at Troon. Thanks to Marjorie for for getting 505, our last one into the uh, <laughs> into the lineup this year. So that's exciting. So, but you know, when you're at a starting place, making these preparations can seem very intimidating to a farmer just starting with biodynamics. How can we make that process more accessible and where should they start? Well, you know, again, that's the importance of the gatherings. I don't think there are very few farms that can make all of the preparations. And so that's where I feel like when farmers can come together and make them, it's not as daunting. And then when there's a prep keeper, then they can give out those preparations or sell those preparations to uh, group members. And so then it makes it a little more accessible as far as the preparations go. So I think that um, that's a really huge, important piece of the gatherings because you get a lot of biodynamic practitioners who are just gardeners, or maybe they don't have cows on their farm, or maybe they don't have, you know, the, all the parts and pieces. And so it makes it more accessible to small farms to be able to call a prep keeper and get preparations, uh, <clears throat> you know, barrel compost or barrel compound is also a great thing to do together or to make on your own if you're a small gardener or farmer. Anyone can make barrel compost and then order the preparations and uh, put them into that and get it out, get the preparations out on their land. So again, you know, the importance of the gatherings for that purpose alone for a farmer to be able to have all of those and then also to connect with other farmers um, to see how they provide their own fertility or to see how they do things certainly every farm because biodynamics is really looking at the farm as its own organism as a full organism and and the goal is to have be creating your own fertility with the addition of the preparations um you know every farm is unique there's that farm individuality in each farm and so you know not everyone's farm is going to be this exactly the same which is what makes the science a little tricky because every situation is going to be different and there are so many variables. Um, so I think um, as far as accessibility with biodynamics, the group aspect is really, really important. Yeah, I, I wanted to just add to that as well about breaking down that that barrier, that seemingly insurmountable barrier that you just took on, you know, head first when you first started making preps. I really admire that. But I think to gather with a group is to be exposed to the actual, you know, procedures or protocols or whatever you want to call it of making these preparations. Um, and just in this last gathering, you know, I've been making preps for 10 years, give or take. And just in this last gathering with you, Marjorie, I was exposed to some novel ideas, like including stinging nettle in our barrel compost was, I think, a really uh, beautiful idea for Oregon farms where nettle is abundant and there can be um, this real opportunity. Another example uh, is, is using equisetum, you know, the 508 horsetail tea um, has incredible uses on a vineyard or 
in an apple orchard where your you know your fungal diseases can be so prevalent and thinking about these novel ways or being exposed to these novel ways in these gatherings i think is another way to just kind of break down that barrier and you know a lot of farmers are wrestling with with unforeseen challenges unexpected unforeseen challenges and trying to come up with solutions and to apply this 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 idea of holistic management and and um, growing the preparations to turn them into teas that can essentially work as antifungal agents in the orchards and in the vines is um, is a is a way to just kind of make this version of farming more accessible to everybody just to be exposed to these ideas that you may not have come across had you not met um, a, a, a really unique engaged practitioner. You know, I, something I just saw an article about uh, another biodynamic event, and and you know, the, the writers uh, don't always, I think, pick up all the concepts of, of biodynamics. And there's the, the writer kept referring to these preparations as fertilizers, but that's not what they are. are they what? How do you perceive the 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 preparations and and their role? Well. You're right. They're not fertilizers. They are more like inoculants. Um, they do not. So each preparation has a different action um, and a relationship. So, for instance, the chamomile preparation helps bring in sulfur and calcium. And it's not that it's adding sulfur and calcium, but it's assisting the plants to uptake the natural sulfur and calcium from the soil. So basically each of these preparations is helping plants to mine what's naturally in the soil that might be locked up. When you don't have uh, the availability of certain nutrients, um, sometimes those fungal bacterial combinations help assist the plants in making those available. You can get a chemical test soil test from a lab and it will tell you particularly in our area of Oregon it will tell you that our soil is high in potassium but because we don't have certain nutrients in the soil also it's that potassium is locked up and it's not available to the plants so when you add these other nutrients and these other these fungal bacterial combinations then it helps to assist the plants to mine that potassium from the soil and it becomes available. So in the you know biochemical sequence of uptake of nutrients of plants, then when you're putting in these nutrients, you're unlocking the soil basically. You're unlocking all of that that is present or maybe present in the soil, but just not available. So these are definitely not fertilizers. They are more like assistance <laughs> to making nutrients available. Well, well something you, you mentioned this briefly before and, and referred to this, you know, in the making of the preparations, you're using animal cheese, you're using uh, plant materials, uh, fermenting them, aging them together. So you're creating this bacterial and fungal relationship in the final preparation. Could you really dig deeper into that? I thought it was really insightful what you said the other day. Yeah, so when you are building soil, you start with a soil aggregate, and that is either clay or sand silica. Uh, clay, this will be a tiny tangent, but clay in itself, I think is a wonderful, wonderful soil aggregate because it has um, what's hot, what's called um, a high cation exchange capacity. So that means that it's holding energy in the soil. It has the ability to um, hold moisture in the soil and to, uh, there's a lot of nutrients in that clay that are often locked up because it's in the form of clay. So you start with clay or sand silica and a bacteria will come along and attach itself and then wait for the symbiotic fungus or a fungus will come along and attach itself and wait for the symbiotic bacteria. And so with these preparations, you have, uh, you, you have these already bacteria fungal combinations so they're attaching and then they're immediately 
building soil with all of your microbes and um, macrofauna and microfauna in the soil. It's it's assisting and sort of um, speeding up that process rather than if you built a compost pile and you have too much um, anaerobic bacteria in there, then you're going to get a very fungal heavy compost. And, you know, that has to do, of course, with oxygenating and turning and all that kind of stuff to build good and having good carbon. But you could have the opposite that has too much. Um, so that one's too much bacteria. You could have the opposite and have too much fungus in there. And then, you know, you're, you're not, you don't have all the pieces in there to build good soil. So when you're putting the preparations in the compost pile and you're building a good pile that has good uh, carbon nitrogen ratios, um, then you're immediately putting out onto the soil these combinations um, to sort of express lane building soil and going deeper. And when you put that here, we're still people bitch and moan about the clay, but <laughs> I feel super lucky to have clay because when you put that interface of clay and you're putting compost on top of that clay, it's just immediately building a deeper, better soil. Um, I don't have a lot of experience with building that on uh, sand or silica, and I can't imagine how hard that would be. But I know that when you're adding the carbon in that situation and organ organic matter, um, you're also able to build soil with sand silica a little bit quicker and easier. So absolutely. I, I was going to say after farming in Southern California for a few years uh, where we did have very sandy soil and not a lot of clay throughout most of the farm, the solution was the same as when you have heavy clays, it's add organic matter, add compost and try to uh, correct if if I may use that word, that balance of, of fungi to bacteria. I think that 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 balance that ratio that is captured in the preps, that is captured in a really beautiful compost pile that is then spread across the entire farm, that that version of inoculation is, as you explained, not a fertilizer per se, but is the is the um, sort of the ticket to improving soil health, whether you're starting with particularly sandy soil or clayey soils. Those are on opposite ends of the spectrum as far as soil texture goes. And yet the the way to improve them is exactly the same. And so I think that that's a really cool facet of biodynamics is you have these principles that are relevant across any context globally. You got a clayey soil, you got a sandy soil, you got a uh, temperate climate versus the tropics, you know, the principles still apply and that is improve organic matter and, and balance your fungi to bacteria ratios and biodynamics again presents this perfect lens through which we can do that. So yeah, I think I think the uh, the medicine is the same, regardless of whether you're starting with sandy soil or not. Uh, Marjorie, so, uh, during the, the event, uh, several times you mentioned the importance of the nutritional value of biodynamic produce. Uh, I think, you know, consumers usually think that buying organic and biodynamic produce is, you, you simply do that to avoid pesticides and other chemicals. What about the actual nutrition to be found in biodynamic produce? Yeah, so when you eat food from a biodynamic farm, it's undeniable the flavor. When you eat a biodynamic carrot, it's undeniably sweet and delicious. When you're increasing the nutrients in the plants um, and nutrient availability from the soil into the plants, you're increasing nutrition and then that comes out in the flavor. Um, it's no wonder it's huge in the wine world because you're literally getting the terroir into the, the vegetables or the fruit. And so uh, the organics is what we don't do. So no, no synthetic fertilizers, no pesticides and herbicides. And then I like to think of biodynamics is what you do. And that is healing the soil, adding to the soil in order for the plants to uptake those nutrients. That increases uh, 
the the preparations and the sprays that you use in biodynamics increase flavonoids, increase um, the BRICS levels, increase sugars, uh, volatile oils. Um, and so with all of that increase, because the nutrient, it it's literally making nutrients more available to plants in the soil. And so the plants react by uptaking that and having a higher nutritional value. And then that comes out in the flavor. So that's uh, when you're eating good nutritious food, obviously that affects your body and your brain and everything, you know, to help you function better. So there's this way that, by, you know, that's the way I think the way that biodynamics works on you as much as you work on it is even if you don't believe in any of the esoteric parts of it, if you practice biodynamics and then you start eating the food and then that food is going to your head, <laughs> then you're getting all of this nutrition. I mean, it's absolutely no wonder that biodynamics is big in the wine world because of that, because you're allowing the grape plant to pull in all the nutrients from around it. Like the grape plant is actually such an amazing plant in itself because it sends this taproot down and then it its roots are going out and drawing from everything growing around it and so with biodynamics you're increasing that um that capacity of the roots to grow out into the soil and draw even more nutrients so uh, a biodynamic grape is going to have all the nutrients and flavor as opposed to one that's farmed chemically um, and it's barely going to have roots going out and drawing in stuff, drawing in nutrients. And so you get this incredible uh, flavor in your food and in your wine and in whatever it is that you're growing. Apples, you know, for us, it's apples. People eat our apples and they're like, oh, my gosh, why does this taste so good? <laughs> you know, and there's such a lack of nutrients in our food these days in general. And when somebody eats good, nutritious food, they want to eat more of it because it's filling them up instead of giving them empty calories. So as far as the nutrient availability in the food, and I would love to see more studies about this, you know, on biodynamic food and what it's doing. I think that in itself should be a, a a seller to biodynamics, you know. I I was just going to add that as well. I think that that's such an important research question or or line of questioning is to actually evaluate the nutritional content in biodynamically grown versus organically grown versus conventionally grown or whatever treatment you want to throw in here. I've done a little bit of that research in my academic background and have learned through that experience that if you're not asking the right questions, if you're not testing for the right suite of nutrients, you're not likely to see the differences that you might expect to see if you're doing, let's say, a blind taste test or something like that. I think sensory evaluation or personal experience have demonstrated that the kind of duh, like <laughs> outcome that you were just saying, like, yeah, you just feel better. It tastes better. It's more flavorful. You feel more energized. You feel this vitality. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a sensory experience. And then if you go to some quantitative lab test and you start looking at the elemental nutrition of that carrot or that wine grape or whatever, and you're just looking at calcium, or you're even just looking at like vitamin D or something like that, you might not actually detect a difference. It's only when you really start to dig in to look at some of those bigger macromolecules that are related to taste and sense um, that you start to see some of these differences. And I think that's been borne out in a lot of studies about eggs. Um, until people started looking at the balance of omega-3s to omega-6 fatty acids, it wasn't exactly clear why pastured eggs were more heart healthy for us. And then once you really start testing for all of those, you you start to see that these outcomes are are more apparent. And that seems to me to be a, a real clear direction that academic research should be heading is to demonstrate the real nutritional value of food grown in these holistic biodynamic systems and regenerative farms. Um, and I think it's something that that the the world of big egg, frankly, doesn't want to test. They don't want academics showing that there's 
better nutrition in food grown this way, um, because that's certainly not how it's being grown or treated in big ag. So I think that that opens up a real line of questioning as we look to the future. So, so wine has a unique place in biodynamics as wine has a long shelf life easy to transport and store, and biodynamic certification can be prominently displayed on the label. I've always felt because of these advantages, the winemaking community has a unique responsibility and opportunity to educate customers on biodynamic agriculture. What should the wine industry be doing to better spread the knowledge of biodynamics? Well, first, educate everyone in your businesses. In the yeah, wine. start by not shying away from it and, and telling your people to stop talking about it, maybe. <laughs> it's a good place yeah, to start. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Everything, especially down to the the um, servers in the wine bars, the people who are giving, those people should have like the most knowledge because they're interfacing with the public and starting with, um, you know, educating them about what biodynamics does so that we can get away from the woo-woo part of biodynamics so we can get away from, and I'm not saying that that's that the spiritual aspects are not important or esoteric aspects are not important i'm just saying that um in order to bring biodynamics out of that um where it's not taken seriously uh that interfacing of your wine people that will go really far because they can people can sit there and taste the wine and then the person serving it to them can just chat away about and educate the consumer about the what's going on with biodynamics. I think that is um, a really important piece. I've gone to wineries and, and educated staff about how to speak to biodynamics. That takes it more serious and takes the, you know, there's that book, Voodoo Vintners, and that, you know, was while it was a great opening, it, um, it, lacked kind of some of the seriousness. I think that we have to get to that place where we're making the bridge with taking biodynamics seriously and and making it more accessible in a modern way. And so that's something that the wine world can do because a person is going to be captivated and captured while they're tasting their wine <laughs> and they can get a whole education about biodynamics and it's not going to be just about the moon rhythms or the esoteric parts but about what biodynamics is doing as far as the science the soil health uh the nutrition flavor you know there's a myriad of of things i think that's a really great opportunity in the wine world to to capture. So as we approach the 100th anniversary of Rudolf Steiner's lectures, which set in motion the biodynamic movement, how do you see the future of the biodynamic movement, both of you? Well, I think that's something that we are going to address at the conference, for one thing. Let's mention that real quick. Last... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so plug the conference. The conference. <laughs> Uh, the last panel at the conference, keynote speakers uh, will be looking at what, what that is. What is the next 100 years of biodynamics? You know, Steiner said in his lectures that there's going to be a time when we're lacking nutrition in our food, which in turn makes us lack intelligent thought and, and spirituality in our lives. And so he said there will come a time and he gave the agriculture lectures and he said now take the next hundred years to develop it and to ask questions and to experiment and to do it and here we are a hundred years later now where are we going to go how how do we ask the right questions to do the science how do we uh, use the practice and spread the practice um i'm i hope that I'm super excited about this panel of keynote speakers at the last uh, on Sunday, because I think it's just going to catapult and launch us into looking at that. What is what does the next hundred years look at? Um, I'm excited about all the speakers. It's going to be uh, Maggie Keith, Lloyd Nelson, Garrett Long, and um, Christina Rossi Vila from Tennessee. 
will be the speakers and then I'll be facilitating the four of them. Garrett, do you want to speak to this? Yeah, yeah, I think, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a thought that was really inspired by our conversation that we had when you were out here, Marjorie, but I think you've alluded to it in this conversation too about building bridges and going from folk farming to this kind of modern industrial age to then how can we apply these lessons and these technologies to quote unquote folk farming, right? And how can we better study it and, and understand it? Um, and adapt it to this modern age as well. And and sort of, you know, as as spot on as I think Steiner's predictions were, as you just laid out, you know, food is lacking nutrition, people are lacking willpower to actually create change in their own lives and also respond to climate change. Uh, and I think there are a lot of lessons and technologies that we can carefully borrow from a more uh, uh, modern sort of industrial age. And I look at some of the farming equipment that we use in our vineyards, like tractor implements or sprayers or things that just didn't exist a hundred years ago. And how can we experimentally uh, continue in the next hundred years, applying novel technologies and novel ways of thinking about working with the preparations and working with the thoughts behind them and applying them to our various contexts. Again, wineries, farms, dairies, vegetables, uh, health and beauty and skincare products are going to be on display at the Biodynamic Showcase. Um, next month, November 10th through the 12th, is this uh, Biodynamic Annual Conference that you were talking about in Denver. And I think, uh, to me, that's a real opportunity for the future is to continue experimenting with with some of these tools and i think that that the tools are both how we practice agriculture on the day-to-day -day, and they're also how we research it and understand it and i think that's something that we could really um you know take a deep dive into is what are those different versions of testing and analysis we talked about quantitative analysis qualitative analysis um what is the role of publishing in a peer-reviewed journal versus a more uh, sort of anecdotal case study. Uh, there's there's just a lot to dig into, I think, with the science and the research side of it that really inspires both of us. And I think uh, is, is hopefully inspiring the next generation too, because as practitioners and biodynamic farmers, we, uh, like all farmers, wear a lot of hats, right? We're mechanics and we're forecasters and we're you know, animal caretakers, and we're all of these many different hats. And I think researchers uh, and, and experimenters uh, should be at the top of the list uh, in describing every farmer, but especially biodynamic farmers. So given that that was the impulse that Steiner provided for us 100 years ago, I think to raise that again to prominence uh, is is really important and and to keep asking those questions but ask them in a more nuanced way and ask sort of what what we're, what we're calling the, like the right questions, right? The right questions and the right technologies to get to answers, revelations that we hope to pull out of this. You know, it, again, we, we perceive them, we sense them in the flavors, we experience them in the vitality of the wine, and yet academic research continues to lag behind in demonstrating how and why and what are these compounds and 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 what is the role of the preparations versus the other you know ninety some percent of biodynamics that's really proven out in in academic research around taking care of soil health and reducing tillage and you know improving soil biology and biodiversity on farms all of this has been borne out in the academic literature to be really supportive. How can we move it to the next level and what questions can we ask and what technologies can we borrow? Uh, to gain new insights. I think that's really important as we look to the future. So as we come close to the end of our time here, I, I just wanted to perhaps talk about the spiritual side just a little bit based on a conversation we had uh, when you were here, Marjorie, is that you know that the spiritual side is very personal and it's perhaps something that's arrived at through the work, not uh, given by the work. It's your experience. Uh, I thought you had some really beautiful insights on that. Yeah, thank you. I I try not to 
talk too much about that because I don't want to be telling someone how to be spiritual. I think that that really should be left up to the individual. And this, we approach biodynamics from the side of spiritual science, as it's said. Um, and I think that once you start doing the practice and gaining the nutrition, then that side starts to stir and be developed within the individual. And that it's the way that biodynamics works on you as you work on biodynamics and we gain willpower with better nutrition uh and gain intuition and insight and i feel like it's even steiner said it's important to develop your own intuition towards things which in turn develops your spiritual side society in general i think lacks spirituality and that's you know there are a lot of people that are damaged by religion and so you know i try to steer away from talking about that when i'm teaching biodynamics because i feel like if people practice biodynamics and they eat the food then that side just happens it it gets developed and it gets developed in many capacities you know, someone could have huge revelations. Um, so I feel like that is an aspect of biodynamics that it's really kind of undeniable once it starts to happen. You know, I have seen people who are complete agnostics uh, practice biodynamics for a few years and then suddenly it's like they're feeling nature, they're feeling the nature around them, they're, uh, getting the nutrition so they're thinking deeper maybe um i feel like that's just something that's a beautiful side effect of practicing biodynamics is this spiritual development that happens by it's not one thing biodynamics it's very individual experience absolutely yes and that's just it is every person develops their own individual spiritual aspect and and it's important to have that individual individuality in in the self and not be told how to be spiritual in a dogmatic way that um that to me isn't um it's not a good way to develop your spirituality but eating good food practicing biodynamics being in nature gathering with friends there, absolutely yeah it's all um, the wonderful side effects of biodynamics. <laughs> I'm I'm reminded of a, a quote. I guess I'll, I'll paraphrase it, but Masanobu Fukuoka, who wrote One Straw Revolution and several other great reads. Um, uh, I forget the the first part of the quote, but it's about the betterment of the human spirit through. I'll say this this approach to farming. He wasn't practicing biodynamics specifically. He had a different you know, a phrase, natural farming is what he called it. But I think the intention is the same to what you're talking about. Uh, in, 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 in his fields, it wasn't get down off of your tractor, but it was very much immerse yourself in nature. He had this hillside farm and then he had his, his rice fields in the lower valleys. And it was about experiencing the energetic qualities, the differences between the forest and the fields and I think that this approach to farming of, of, like you just said, immerse yourself in nature, gather people, share ideas, eat good food, that all of this leads to the betterment of the human spirit, which allows us to deepen our practice, hopefully gain more spiritual revelation and, uh, and, 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 you know, really approach farming with this kind of, uh, clean heart i guess maybe um this this intention and this consciousness conscientiousness about um what your impact is on a daily basis and what your impact is on your community you know are you providing good nutritious healthy food for your community or are you spraying these pesticides that are negatively impacting bees and it's not just uh it's not so black and white as that but i think uh through the practice and i've talked a lot about this idea before but through the practice of biodynamics through the practice of preparation making uh you 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 really 
gain these insights in a, in a natural way, in a, in a intuitive way. And uh, yeah, it is such a personal experience. So Marjorie, tell us now you've got your, you've got an apple farm. You're doing some consulting. Where can people find you? Where can we get your apples? <laughs> All those things. Um, well, right now we are mostly just picking the apples and pressing them. We have maybe about one, two, three, four, five, 600 gallons of cider fermenting. Um, we just had an apple pressing party on Saturday. We sell our apples. Well, right now we're selling them to the school district again. So the South, um, so the kids in our local public schools are eating our apples and we sell them to whoever wants to come and buy some. We do uh, pressings for people. So if people order cider, uh, fresh pressed cider, uh, they can put in an order and we'll do a day of pressing for them. Uh, my husband is the pressing maniac around here. He does a lot of the apple pressing. Um, I am not currently selling at the South Lane Farmers Market uh, this year because I had other opportunities happening. So perhaps next year, my daughter will be moving home from Nashville and she wants to uh, grow vegetables and work at the farm. And she'll probably, she and my son will probably start up Farmers Market again next year. They're both grew up doing that and um, have in the last few years done it on their own. So South uh, Valley Farmers Market, actually South Valley Farmers Market, there's more biodynamic farmers there than any farmers market in the country. So not everyone is certified. Um, I should speak to, you know, the certification of biodynamics is called Demeter. And a couple of aspects that set Demeter certification aside from other certifications is that the farmer farm is required to put aside 10% of their land for nature. And then it holds the highest, uh, strictest animal welfare um, rules of any certification. So uh, there are a lot of small farms that are not certified because biodynamics fits really well with a small farm. And usually those small farms are selling just direct to their, to the public or to their, uh, through CSA um, or to their communities directly through farmer's market. So uh, for now, I've taken my website down, which was gobiodynamic.com, uh, which was my consulting website, um, because I am currently teaching urban farm and garden at the UVO. So that's um, kind of where my focus is at the moment is teaching and inspiring others um, to have this lifestyle. Farming is a lifestyle. Gardening is a lifestyle. It's something you might not make a million dollars at, but <laughs> um, but you're going to have a good life, I think. Um, yeah, so I am in uh, Cottage Grove, Singing Creek Farm. People can make appointments to come here and have tours. We have quite a few tours. We have children come out from schools. We have um, the Waldorf teacher training. So I've been handed, Wallavia did the biodynamic farming uh, classes for the Waldorf teacher training at the Eugene Waldorf school. And he, um, I'm super honored. He passed that on to me this year. So I also teach that, which is just a couple days a year. Um, so we have those groups come out for tours. We have had South Valley Athletics. They had a nature camp and they came out to our farm for tours. So we're, we're always open to that kind of thing. Our farm is only seven acres. We have two acres of apples, which is around roughly 500 apple trees, uh, mostly dessert apples. Um, we've been cutting them down, some of them, and top grafting new varieties, cider varieties. I also belong to a group called a the agrarian sharing network and this is uh you can look it up we have a website what we do is we're all orchardists so we bring scion to these events and we offer hundreds of varieties of scion we bring rootstock you can have you can choose the scion you can take scion for free uh buy a rootstock for three dollars and and we have grafters volunteer grafters set up to graft trees the the initiative with this is to um, provide 
food security in small communities. We put on about eight of these events between Corvallis, Eugene, Sweet Home, Cottage Grove, Williams, Cave Junction, and it's also a seed swap. And so we have initiatives for seed grow out, grow outs, and we offer good viable seed and this, it's all free. And um, that is, we also have work parties here at the farm for that, to get ready for that. It's a bunch of nerdy plant people and it's a good time <laughs> if you're into that. Um, and then, you know, we talk about biodynamics, we talk about grafting fruit, fruit identification. Uh, it's something that I'm really involved in. Then the Oregon Biodynamic Group is another group I'm involved in. We have a website, we sell preparations. You can come and learn, it's free. Uh, we have our, our spring meeting. So we have a spring open house that usually happens around April or May. And we choose a different Waldorf school anywhere between Portland, Corvallis, and Eugene. And it's an all-day education on biodynamics. It's also free. You can give a donation for it, but it's free. Uh, we have different people talk about, we cover the moon calendar. We cover animal husbandry, um, preparations, compost making, and... Oh, sometimes other subjects get thrown in there, but it's an all-day event. This last year, we did it at the Eugene Waldorf School, so I'm, uh, I think we'll be at, doing it at the Corvallis Waldorf School next spring. And then we have spring preparation making at the win at Wintergreen Farm, and we dig up the preparations there in the spring. Uh, summer preparation making is at our farm, usually in June. All of these dates can be found on our website. We usually put them, post them or make them in January. We have a winter study meeting that's open to the public as well. Sometimes we choose a chapter of the agriculture course. I think the subject of this winter is going to be uh, the social aspects of biodynamics. And that I believe tentatively will be at Goodfoot Farm, um, which is up in Philomath. And that's uh, Beth Hoynaki's farm. And then we do fall preparation making again at Wintergreen Farm. So we have a roughly about five meetings a year with the Oregon Biodynamic Group. And that can all be found on our website, which is OregonBD.com. So uh, then there's the Alliance and the conference coming up. That's in Westminster, Colorado, uh, November 10th, I believe, right? Garrett? Yes, <laughs> forgetting yes, the, date. the 10th through the 12th. There's some pre-conference events that start on the 8th and 9th, but you're right. It's that weekend. Right. Yeah. And that's in Westminster, Colorado. And that's our big biodynamic event. And then there's numerous other events around the U.S., but as far as preparation making. So we will, I also belong to the Fellowship of Preparation Makers. We meet once a month and have a call and talk about preparation making and kind of keep our finger on the pulse of biodynamics in the United States. We will have a booth there at the conference also, so you can come and find out where your local group is, preparation making group or otherwise. There are some groups that just do study of the ag agriculture course or other anthroposophical um, subjects. So you you can find that also at the at the conference. Well, Marjorie, your 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 work and enthusiasm is in, inspirational to say to say the least. Uh, we thank you for joining us today and for everything you're doing for the community. And you are truly making a difference. And it was a really privilege to have you join us here on the farm. So thank this, you. I appreciate you guys doing this. So this podcast will have a companion video uh, we made of uh, the actual uh, compost, uh, I, I mean, the, the preparation making day. And so we're going to have a, a quite a complete uh, um, look at this whole process. And also in the show notes will be links to our previous uh, podcasts about the preps themselves. So you can get an idea of what's going on. So Marjorie and Garrett, thank you. We are happy to share this podcast from Troon Vineyard, a Demeter Biodynamic and Regenerative Organic Certified Winery in Oregon's Applegate Valley. We farm like the world depends on it by growing produce in our gardens and naturally crafting authentic wines. We will be sharing these in-depth podcasts several times a month. To learn more, I encourage you to visit our website 
at TrunVineyard.com and those of the Regenerative Organic Alliance at RegenOrganic.org and Demeter Biodynamics at Demeter-USA.org. Thanks for sharing our voyage to regenerative agriculture with us.